with deep sadness, David departs from his beloved brother, Jonathan, to begin his exile. But before he flees into the wilderness, he first visits the faithful priest, Ahimelech. This is the 45th sermon in the series, Dynasty, Lordship, and Authority, an exposition on the first book of Samuel. A roll covenant reading coming from 1 Samuel in chapter 21. 1 Samuel in chapter 21, the entirety of the text, the entire chapter, 15 verses. By inspiration of God, the prophet writes, Then came David to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech was afraid at the meeting of David, and said unto him, Why art thou alone, and no man with thee? And David said unto Ahimelech the priest, The king hath commanded me a business, and hath said unto me, Let no man know anything of the business whereabout I send thee, and what I have commanded thee, and I have appointed my servants to such and such a place. Now therefore, what is under thine hand? Give me five loaves of bread in mine hand, or what there is present. And the priest answered David and said, There is no common bread under mine hand, but there is hallowed bread, if the young men have kept themselves at least from women. And David answered the priest and said unto him, Of a truth women have been kept from us about these three days since I came out, and the vessels of the young men are holy, and the bread is in a manner common, yea, though it were sanctified this day in the vessel. So the priest gave him hallowed bread, for there was no bread there but the shewbread that was taken from before the Lord to put hot bread in the day when it was taken away. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord, and his name was Doeg, an Edomite, the chiefest of the herdsmen that belonged to Saul. And David said unto Ahimelech, And is there not here under thine hand spear or sword? For I have neither brought my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, The sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom thou slewest in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If thou wilt take that, take it, for there is no other save that here. And David said, There is none like that. Give it me. And David arose and fled that day for fear of Saul, and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said unto him, Is not this David the king of the land? Did not they sing one to another of him in dances, saying, Saul had slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands? And David laid up these words in his heart, and was sore afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. And he changed his behavior before them, and feigned himself mad in their hands, and scrabbled on the doors of the gate, and let his spittle fall down upon his beard. Then said Achish unto his servants, Lo, ye see the man here is mad. Wherefore then have ye brought him to me? Have I need of madmen, that ye have brought this fellow to play the madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? The Apostle Paul, writing to Titus and the first chapter of Titus, chapter 1, beginning in verse 10, verses 10 and 11. By the same Spirit, the Apostle counsels, he says this, For there are many unruly and vain talkers and deceivers, especially they of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole houses, teaching things which they ought not, for filthy Lucas' sake. Thus far is the reading of God's most holy, inerrant, and finally authoritative word. The grass withers, the flower thereof fades away, but God's word is presented unto us again this day in the history of David the king. Now, after a heart-wrenching departure, 
Jonathan and David part ways, but not from disloyalties, but out of necessity. Jonathan would return to the court of the tyrant king, his father, in order to gain intel and to keep an eye out for whatever the murderous king would do. And, and there's an interesting lesson here of a very practical nature. Remember we saw that Jonathan could have said to David, or David could have said to Jonathan, let us go together and ban ourselves together and take our armies together with us and let us go and uproot the tyrant king. But, but that's not what happened. Jonathan said to David, let me go back to the court of the king. And he did this for a very practical reason because it's always beneficial especially in the time of war or in the time of tyranny when tyrants go unchecked to have a trusted friend behind the enemy lines in confidence so that he might spy out the enemy so really what Jonathan was doing was he was going to be a secret spy in the house of his father Jonathan's plan was to remain privy to his father's actions against David in order to warn his beloved friend of any immediate danger. This was very cunning. So in order to do this, Jonathan needed two things. First of all, he needed to be watchful over any and every possible plan to kill David. In other words, he had to keep a keen eye out. He had to keep his ear to the ground. He had to keep a keen eye out for any hint of any plan against David by his father. Secondly, Jonathan needed a network of trusted spies. So he needed to network of others who would also, because he couldn't do it himself, he would also have a network of people listening to see what was his father's plan, if any, to kill David. So he needed these trusted spies to give him intel as to Saul's intentions. And the way he did this was by being a trustworthy individual. Remember, we we saw how Jonathan was trustworthy. He was humble. He was kind. And yet he was cunning. And people loved Jonathan. People stood up for Jonathan when, when wicked Saul wanted to kill his own son for a law, which was not even a law. So the people loved him. So it was pretty easy because Jonathan had been being himself, grooming people to like him, it was probably pretty easy for Jonathan to say, listen, my my father is out of his mind. And we need to help David because I believe, as we saw, Jonathan did know that David would be the future king. So the people loved him. His integrity was well known. And that's what we should be doing. We should be building within our community, not only in the church community, but within our local community, we should be building our integrity. We should be keeping a watchful eye, not only our own selves, but through our network of people as well, keeping a watchful eye on the enemy's plans so as to be ready to address them, to navigate around them, through them, or direct confrontation against them. Secondly, we must be building, as I said before, a network of trusted brethren to assist in that task. Never believe, and I don't believe Jonathan believed this, that he could do this all by himself. We need to network together. This is why the body of Christ is called the body of Christ with many. One and yet many. Now just before David and Jonathan part ways, Jonathan reminds David of their covenant oath and then bids him peace. And Jonathan said to David, and this is chapter 20, verse 42, And Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, for as much as we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord be between me and thee, and between my seed and thy seed forever. Now, notice, Jonathan is thinking generationally, and that's how we need to be thinking, generationally. So he's asking David, 
be a blessing to my generation so that together through the generations we might advance the kingdom of God through your kingship and my lineage as well. But this idea of Jonathan saying to David, go in peace, was an odd benediction. It was, it was an odd way to, to, to tell David to go because it was ironic. Jonathan bids David to go in peace when in fact he and David both knew that war was imminent between Saul and David. And yet, Jonathan says, go in peace, because that's what his desire was. Jonathan's desire for David, that he would ultimately find peace, even in the midst of war. And the only way to find peace in the midst of war, the only way to find peace in the midst of a tyrannical overreach, is through trusting the Lord Jesus Christ. So how, then, are we to find peace? By trusting by trusting. Every time you read in the Psalms that, that David was, was beside himself, frightened or, or concerned, he trusted God. He said, when I am afraid, at those times when I am afraid, I will trust in thee. So the way we find peace in the midst of the warfare of the tyrant is we trust in the Lord. But that does not mean that we do not prepare for whatever onslaught might come to us from the tyrant or from wicked men and nations. While we prepare, we still trust. We trust that the Lord will provide for us the wherewithal to to be prepared, that we will be provided by the Lord integrity, confidence, resolution, tenacity, courage, strength, knowledge, wisdom. These are the things we trust God for. So that when we come face to face with decisions, we will have the wherewithal. Trusting God that we will be able to do that which is right and that which is profitable. So knowing that God has promised to protect His beloved bride, the church, we trust Him. And it was perfectly clear to David that Saul intended to kill him. There was no question. Saul wanted to kill David. He wanted to destroy the lineage of David, which lineage would be the kingdom of God beginning with David. So really what Saul was thinking was, I don't want the kingdom of God to advance with David, I want the kingdom of God to advance with me. And if you remember, Saul is a great type of Adam, the Antichrist. David, a great type of the Christ. And this is what Adam, the Antichrist, this is what Adamic nature wants. They want to provide a kingdom for themselves, a kingdom according to their own ideology, and not the kingdom of God. And so David knows at this point, without a shadow of a doubt, that he will be hunted by the apostate tyrannical king, and so he escapes to the house of Ahimelech, the priest at Nob. And and this is how, and this is important, this is how he begins his preparation. He has to prepare. He knows he's in for it, so he needs to prepare. So the first thing he does, he goes to church. He goes to the house of God in order to begin his exile, his preparation. This was a strategic move by the future king on both a spiritual level and a practical level. Now remember, David was a cunning man and his behavior should be understood as calculated. He wasn't just running in confusion. This was calculated. He knew, I need to go to the house of Ahimelech. I need to be spiritually prepared. I need to be prepared practically. Now, his arrival at the house of the priest was a tactical move. Make no mistake about it, everything that David did was tactically thought out. 
two things stand out here. On the practical level, David needed provisions and a means of self-defense. He's preparing. The particular place he goes is the house of the priest. And the particular house of the Lord that he goes to would furnish him with both of these things, provisions and means for self-defense, because it was here he knew that there was communion bread and he knew that the sword of Goliath was there as well. David also needed some comfort. He needed comfort on the spiritual level as well as on the practical level. Remember, whenever we are faced with difficulty, whether it's catastrophic events, whether it's catastrophic events, hurricanes, forest fires, snowstorms, or tyranny, we need to be prepared spiritually, psychologically, because it doesn't really matter what you have at your disposal, how much food you have stored, how much much ammunition you have in your arsenal. It doesn't really matter if you're not psychologically and spiritually prepared to make use of those means. David needed to be spiritually prepared for that time where he would be running and dealing with the tyrant king. So he needed some spiritual consolation, some comfort on the spiritual level. So he goes to the priest. So he's preparing himself spiritually and physically. And this shows that the church of Jesus Christ should be a place of spiritual comfort as well as practical preparedness. Furthermore, it is a place where one goes for protection and where one is provided with weapons of war, both physically and spiritually. Now one might say, well, wait a minute, hold on, wait. Weapons of war in the house of God? How blasphemous is that? Well, during the Middle Ages and during the Puritan Age and the Scottish Presbyterian Age, the colonial period, in fact, it was the church that was the repository for the truth of God's word as well as the weapons of warfare, those tools for self-defense against the tyranny of the king. In fact, during the Puritan Age, you could not sit at the end of the pew unless you had a firearm because the Indians knew that on Sunday would be the day of worship and they would be most vulnerable. It was in the pulpit where the ammunition was stored. So the weapons of warfare were often in the church. Now consider the priest's first response. Then came David to Nob to Ahimelech the priest, and Ahimelech was afraid at the meeting of David and said unto him, Why art thou alone? Why are you all alone and no man is with thee? That's quite odd. You would think, oh, David, the giant killer. David, the the, the man of war, the, the man who played the psaltery for Saul. But why are you alone? So at the arrival of David, Ahimelech begins to be afraid. He shows himself fearful. To understand his fear, we need to understand that that David had become Saul's armor-bearer and the victor over Goliath, the Goliath of Gath, then why should he come alone? He should have had an army with him. Why would he be there all by himself? Why come alone? Now, perhaps Ahimelech was concerned. Of course, he was hearing the rumblings of Saul. Why was he concerned that he might be coming at the command of Saul, who was now known to be losing his composure all by himself? Well, maybe in the mind of the priest... 
The priest might think that he was in danger from the tyrant, perhaps even thinking that David was coming to spy out the situation so as to inform Saul of the house of the priest, whether he was for or against Saul, where was his allegiance. He might have even thought, and I think this is very possible, Ahimelech might have even thought that David was there all by himself to assassinate him secretly at the bidding of Saul because, remember, Saul wanted to be his God and you can't be God if you got the priest, the high priest of God, representing God. Because, remember, man's desire is to be his God and if they have the church in the way, they first have to get rid of the church to be his God. So perhaps even Ahimelech thought that David was there all by himself, this was an odd thing to be alone, in order to assassinate him secretly. And of course, his fears were justified. Because later on, Saul takes vengeance upon the priests and assassinates them all. Himelech was justified in thinking all of these things. Since whenever there is a tyrannical rule over the nation, the one thing that keeps them in check is the church and the one thing that they want to get rid of because they don't want to keep themselves into check. The one thing they need to get rid of is the church the leaders of the church in particular, the priests, the pastors, so that they can become the church, that they can become the mouthpiece of God with them in the position and on the throne of God. Now, from these possible concerns, Ahimelech was fearful at the arrival of David. Secondly, he asks him, why does he come alone? And this may give credence to Ahimelech's fear that David was going to kill him secretly. Certainly for the captain of Saul's army, for David to come without an armed host was really odd because he was, he was the man. He was the guy who had the army. So it's inconceivable that the priest knew that David was fleeing Saul or that Saul had tried to kill David and had become a sworn enemy of the future king. Notice, notice David's answer in verse 2. And David said unto Ahimelech, The king hath commanded me a business, and hath said unto me, Let no man know anything of the business whereabout I send thee, and what I have commanded thee, and I have appointed my servants to such and such a place. And that was an out-and-out lie. He is purposely deceiving the priest. And yet, he does this in a righteous fashion, because this was a cunning safeguard, since David's life was in the balance. This was a life-and-death situation. This was a life-and-death visit to the priest. And it may also have been a deception, not only to protect David, but to protect Ahimelech. If the priest remained ignorant of the real reason why David was there, if David said, you know, the Saul's trying to kill me and I've got to hide out here, now he's making Ahimelech a co-conspirator. So any attempt at interrogation by Saul, if the priest remained ignorant, would ensure that there was no conspiracy against Saul, since Ahimelech could say, I don't know, I didn't know what was going on, this is your armor bearer, this is the guy, this is the main guy, I just did what he said. I thought he was here from you. David then asked for food, only to find out that the only food that was there were the five loaves of bread that the priest had. This was the showbread. And this was a strange request where David's asking for the showbread because he knew that it was reserved for the priest. And he, David knew that. But hearing David's request, Ahimelech responds in verse 4. He says, And the priest answered David and said, There is no common bread under mine hand, but there is hallowed bread if the young men have kept themselves at least from women. So the priest still thinks that David has his army out there somewhere where he couldn't see them. And his response 
uh, uh, of course, is that, yes, the, the men have kept themselves from women, and I do have my army out there. He alludes to that. And, you know, you have to provide for them as well, even though, um, even though you don't see them. So David does not correct Ahimelech's assumption, but he plays off of it. Now, if David had an army with him, Ahimelech would think that David was, in fact, on the king's errand and not alone assassin. So this is also comforting Ahimelech. And David answered the priest, verse 5, and said to him, Of a truth, women have been kept from us about these three days since I came out. So he doubles down on his deception. And the vessels of the young men are holy, and the bread is in a manner common, yea, though it were sanctified this day in the vessel. So trusting David, Ahimelech gives him the bread, thinking that it was to provide the army with food. Now he even may have surmised, maybe David was implying that the army was uh, on the verge of salvation. So the priest gives him the hallowed bread, and David takes the bread for his provisions. Now during this entire discussion, you know, the, the, at first David perhaps would think, well, it's just the priest and me. This is a secret meeting. Just the two of us. But unbeknownst to David, within that room, there was another man overhearing the entire discourse between David and Ahimelech and his name, Doeg the Edomite. And Doeg here is identified as a servant of Saul. In fact, Doeg had a high position in Saul's army as the chiefest, as it says here in verse 7, uh, as the chiefest of the herdsmen of Saul. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord, and his name was Doeg the Edomite, the chiefest of the herdmen that belonged to Saul. Now it can be safely assumed that Doeg, the servant of Saul, was a faithful servant of Saul and may have even heard of the rumblings between Saul and David. If he was a faithful servant, and he was attached to the, the king's court, then he understood what was going on. He might have even heard in the throne room of Saul that Saul wanted to kill David. And if he was the chief herdsman, then it would also be safe to say that Saul trusted him to care for his herd. But who was Doeg exactly? Was he just the guy caring for the herd? The idea that he was Saul's trusted herdsman implies that he was more than a keeper of sheep. The Hebrew wording in these passages tells us that Doeg was actually one of Saul's military guards and a man very capable of military skill. He might have been a herdsman, but it wasn't of sheep. It was of other men. He was likely an experienced fighter, which may have been the reason why Saul made him a chief herdsman, not of sheep, but of his military forces. Moreover, Doeg, like Saul, was a murderous man. An amoral, anti-moral, wicked man, vicious, violent man, since later on, at the request of Saul, He is the man who falls upon 85 priests, kills them all, assassinates every one of them, even after the footmen of Saul refused. The footmen refused. No, we're not going to kill the priests. He said, don't worry, I'll kill them. And he kills 85 of them. Verse 7 says very clearly that this Doeg was detained before the Lord in the house of Ahimelech. Now, for whatever reason, providentially speaking, he was detained in the priest's house. But we don't know really why. The fact of the matter is, and the only real thing we have to worry about, is he was there. 
Adam Clark surmises this. He says, Doeg was probably fulfilling some vow to the Lord and therefore for a time resided at the tabernacle. But whatever the reason, God put him there to overhear this situation. God had providentially orchestrated this for a further trial upon David. And what he is about to realize is Ahimelech is going to assist David. Doeg is now privy to everything that's going on between David and Ahimelech, and he's seeing firsthand that Ahimelech is going to assist David, conspiring with David against Saul, and that's the last thing that Saul would want. David then asks for weapons. And David said unto Ahimelech, And is there not here under thine hand spear or sword? For I have neither brought my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. That also is very odd, a very strange thing for David to say. I hurried up and I took no weapons of war with me. It didn't even make any sense. For the king's armor bearer, this this man of war, to bring his army without any weapons was unheard of. The excuse that the king's business required haste was so lame, and yet Ahimelech doesn't question it. But he offers the sword of Goliath. The sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom thou slewest in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here wrapped in the cloth behind the ephod. If thou wilt take it, take it, for there is no other save that here. Note that phrase. For there is no other weapon except that one here. And David said, there is none like that, give it to me. So Ahimelech gives him the only weapon of the tabernacle. Now what is curious about the priest's statement is the detail. David knew who Goliath was. He didn't have to say, we have the sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom thou slewest in the valley of Elah. David knew Goliath. Why would, why would he say, you know, remember, do you remember David, remember you, you killed the giant? Doeg is listening. He wanted to make sure that David knew who Goliath was and that he had killed him, but not for David's sake. David didn't forget that he killed Goliath. Certainly, Ahimelech knew that Doeg was in his house. He knew Doeg was there and was pretty sure that he was listening very carefully and he knew who Doeg was. And so he reminds David for the purpose of reminding Doeg, who was likely eavesdropping, that David is the famous giant killer who was Saul's champion and Israel's victor, and you better not mess with him. If you turn him in, it might come back against you. Ahimelech also says something very, very unfortunate. He states that the sword of Goliath is the only weapon in the house of the Lord. And it is this statement that we can be sure Doeg took to heart since once that weapon was removed from the priest's house, the entire priesthood was left defenseless. And this will come back to haunt Ahimelech later on. First lesson here is this. Never tell anyone that you are defenseless even if you are. Second lesson. Do not give away your only means of defense no matter who asks even if they come to you with a warrant. Don't give any of your defense away. Thirdly, don't expose your defense strategy or your lack of it to anyone because you never know if a doeg is listening. Remember what Hezekiah the king did. He took the Babylonians. He said, hey, look at everything we've got. Isn't this great? You don't tell the enemy what you have because it will always come back to haunt you. 
You see, if Doeg thought that the priest had weapons stashed somewhere, somewhere in the house of the Lord, he might have not been so quick to fall upon 85 of them. Knowing, however, that they had no means of self-preservation, they were lambs led to the slaughter by the murderous Doeg under the instruction of tyrannical Saul. He knew because he was there when Ahimelech said, this is the only thing we have. Here, take it. See ya. So here is another lesson. Once a civilization, once a nation, once a people is deprived of their weapons of defense and self-preservation, they are ripe for slavery and if they refuse, they will be exterminated. This is why Thomas Jefferson stated on page 334 of his papers, quote, No free man shall ever be debarred of the use of arms. The strongest reason for the people to retain the right to keep and bear arms is, as a last resort, to protect themselves against tyranny in government, end quote. One other thought. If the Church of the Sovereign Christ is to remain free, it should never be left defenseless, especially in times of tyranny. Think about during the Middle Ages. The Christians in the Middle Ages were men of warfare. I was told that today is the day where Martel the Hammer, the grandfather of Charlemagne, drove back the wicked Moors with weapons of warfare. We are never to be left defenseless. The medieval Christians were not defenseless. The Puritans were not defenseless. The Scottish Presbyterians were not defenseless. We should never be defenseless. Now being offered this sort of Goliath was also a token of dominion that David had secured for both himself and for Israel under his leadership, under his headship. Whoever took the head from off Goliath was to be regarded not only as the victory over the Philistines, but as the head of Israel. So he's giving the sword to David, telling Doeg he is the head of Israel. He brought Israel liberation. Goliath's sword was a token of dominion, and David had secured it. Perhaps Doeg Doeg understood this. And this is the reason why Ahimelech made the statement, hoping that it gets back to Saul. But that statement backfired because once Saul heard that David had the sword of Goliath and that that Ahimelech was in, in league with David, it would have reminded him of David's dominion victory, that he didn't get the victory, but David did, and that he would be that much further enraged and determined to kill David because he wanted the glory. So let's... Ask another question. What makes a man so violently interested in holding on to power, like Saul or like anyone? In Saul's case, it was all about his pride and his hope in establishing a generational dynasty for the tribe of Benjamin. But what might be some other reasons why men in general seek to hold on to power or gain power, even if it means resorting to intimidation, deception, lies, propaganda, and violence, are the following. So let's consider some of the possible reasons why men hold on to power. Number one, firstly, we have to understand only men of reprobation seek to hold on to power for themselves. This is a fundamental undergirding reason. Power is given by God to men so as to be used for the kingdom's advancement, the glory of God, the protection and the well-being of the people, and not for the individual's prosperity or self-promotion. Novel thought. Power is given to men so that they might do well for others in obedience in the fear of the Lord and according to the word of God. 
Secondly, those who seek to hold on to power for themselves are also, like Saul, narcissists in the same way as we see so many in our day narcissistically seeking to hold on to power. They believe that only they can do justice to the position of power. And so, having a self-inflated ego, they will do anything and anything, everything and anything, to hold on to their power, even murder. Thirdly, there's another reason here why those in positions of power seek to hold on to it. Today, many have been in political and high-ranking positions uh, for any length of time. If they are not bridled, by the word of God and the spirit of God, they will fall into temptation, compromise their integrity through bribes, embezzlement, cronyism, intimidation, or any number of unethical, perhaps even criminal actions. You can't have someone with so much power not being bridled by the word of God who are not going to go into corruption. The only way to shield themselves from being exposed to corruption is by the word of God. So the only way to shield themselves from being exposed is to be born again. But if they're not born again, they will not be able to shield themselves from the temptations of power. And this holding on to power is not only found in state, county, city, and town levels of government. It's also found in the ecclesiastical realm. Where pastors holding on to power tyrannically think that they also are not there for the glory of God, but only for their own uh, glory and self-serving adulation. So no area, no area is immune to corruption without the operation of the Spirit of God at work. So Saul had not the Spirit, God had taken it from him, David had the Spirit, and that's where we get the opposition of forces. So after obtaining Goliath's sword, David, and this is quite sad, he arose and fled. And he fled that day for fear of Saul and went to Achash, the king of Gath. Well now why not stay in the house of God with the priest? Why not buckle down and stay there. Surely it seems as if he would have been safe there, or or would he? And obviously, the Scriptures does not at this point say why David sought to leave, that he's fleeing for fear of Saul, but later on we read that he's leaving because he finally sees, he finally realizes and recognizes Doeg the Edomite and realizes that He was listening the whole time. And we know that for a fact from chapter 22. After the priests are slaughtered by Doeg and Saul, Ahimelech's son, having escaped the slaughter, recounts the event to David. And one of the sons of Ahimelech, named Abitar, escaped and fled after David. And Abitar showed David that Saul had slain the Lord's priests. And David said unto Abitar, I knew it that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul. He saw him. Seeing him, he said, I need to go. I need to get out of here. So knowing Doeg's position, and he obviously knew Doeg. He obviously knew the loyalty of Doeg to Saul. He flees from the house of Saul. Now, know where he goes. He goes to Achash, the king of Gath. David goes to the king of Gath, where the giant Goliath was from originally. And he goes there for safety. Now, someone would say, why? That's, that's really weird. Why would David go there? What was his reason? Why go to the enemy for protection? Was it cunning or was it folly? Was he out of his mind? No, remember, everything he's doing is tactical. Everything he's doing, he's thinking it through. God is leading him through this. Now consider some possibilities. David hides among the enemies of Saul and Israel, knowing that this would be the last place that Saul would look for him. 
And if they did know that he was there, they would be very hesitant to approach the camp for fear of retaliation by the Philistine king. It would be a war. There would be another war. And that's what they wouldn't want. So David goes to hide there. Now secondly, this was a very bold move perhaps even a risky one. However, David was already viewed by the Philistines as a man not to be trifled with. He killed Goliath. He was an honorable man in their sight. Perhaps even they were afraid of him. He not only killed Goliath, but he had a renowned testimony worldwide throughout many nations that he was the giant killer. Note the testimony of the servants of the king of, of Gath, of King Achish. And the servants of Achish said unto him, Is not this David the king of the land? Notice, is not this David the king of the land? Notice, they didn't say Saul the king of the land. They have already recognized him as the king of the land, the giant killer. They were already seeing what was going to happen or in their mind what was already happening because of his testimony. Did not they sing one to another of him in dances saying Saul had slain his thousands and David his ten thousands? Just think about that. That song went worldwide. It went throughout all of the nations. Yet it was only sung by by the women of Israel. The testimony went worldwide. That's what we should be doing. Singing the song of David's victory, Christ's victory, through the gospel, that he is the sovereign king. Everybody knew of the exploits of David, which made him even, even more feared by his enemies. And his enemies would then be, or at least try to be at peace with him. You see, David had established himself as a valiant man. At least they were not going to face off with him for fear of what he might do to them. Maybe he was there to call an army against them. At least they were at least hesitant as to what was happening here. It was a very odd situation, I'm sure, in their mind. Now, this idea of David establishing himself as a valiant man and the singers of Israel establishing David as the giant killer. This should be the testimony of the saints as a result of the testimony of Christ. Christians should be feared. Remember, David went into the camp and they were afraid. Christians should be feared for their integrity and the God who protects them. But here's the problem. The modern church today, in the modern church, and even the modern church themselves, They no longer view Christ as the sovereign king. Christ is now become my buddy. Christ is now the suffering servant, the little baby in the, in the uh, manger. Not the sovereign king who speaks and worlds crumble, who speaks and nations die. He is no longer viewed as the judge who is able to execute at will the wicked. So Christ is no longer viewed by the modern church as the sovereign king or or the mighty warrior over the enemies of the gospel. Therefore, and again, there's no fear of God. There's very few that really fear God, fear His word. You know, even we read the Bible, we read the Bible and say, oh, this was a nice story. Oh, and this was a really nice story. Oh, that's I don't like that story. I'll just pass over that one. Oh, this is the God of the Old Testament. He was an angry God. But I like the God of the New Testament because He loves children. If Christ is not viewed as the sovereign king of the universe, it follows that his people will not be viewed any longer as mighty men of valor, but men of fear and cowardice. And this is because the church has failed to face off with and conquer the giants of secular humanism. Instead of 
defeating the ideologies and practices of secularism, the church has embraced them. They become the worldly church. In fact, far too many churches are defined by the secularism and worldliness they follow. Instead of advancing the civilization of God, the kingdom of God, they advance the civilization of the earth, of worldliness. They say, well, we need more people in the church. Let's do worldly things to get them in. We'll have concerts, we'll have jokes, we'll have magicians and musicians, and we'll get them all in. And we'll, we'll build a gymnasium and a swimming pool and a tennis court because that's what people really want. But that's not what the church is all about. And so it is lacking as a result of of this transformational power of the church is they're no longer able to make a difference in the world because they have not been transformed. The modern church is no longer seen as the giant killer but as the servants of Saul. What the church needs to reestablish is a testimony of strength, of courage, of resolution, of tenacity. It needs to reestablish a repertoire of victories so that, just like David, a repertoire of victories. He's the giant killer. He's, he's the guy who's killing all the Philistines. He's the guy who's taking Saul's army out to advance them and then conquer the enemy. We need to be reestablished as victors so that men may be able then to say, as Israel once said of David, that the church has slain its thousands of secular ideologies so as to be dubbed the dominion power base of the earth for the glory of God and the advancement of his righteous kingdom. And that's up to us. We need to become lions. That is what the church was at one time. When the pulpits resounded with the word of God with with passion, And when those pulpits were aflame with that vision, people trembled. They then understood the need for the lawgiver, the judge, and the king of nations. Presidents trembled when the pulpits resounded. One of the men who was in the congregation of John Knox, watching John Knox preach, said that he thought that Knox would rip the pulpit to splinters because of his passion. And he did this while the queen was in the audience. Because when God speaks, even the kings of the earth should bow. That's not the church today. David's plan was brilliant. And while he is somewhat wary, he girds himself and enters into the city of Gath to face the king for security. And it's interesting to note here that, that David chooses to go to the secular realm of an enemy nation for fear of his own people. So I have this thought in my mind, how many patriots may have to flee to an enemy nation or state or other county or town for fear of their own nation or state in the future. David would rather seek the mercies of an enemy than the mercies of his own nation because his own nation, his own king had become so wicked. As a result of his fear for what Achish might do, David concocts a plan. Going to Gath would give him time to decide what he would do next by making believe that he was insane might dissuade the Philistine king from killing him. You got a madman there. He was, his spit was falling down his beard. Just think about it. He's spitting on things. He's falling down over himself. I mean, who can do, who does, who thinks like that? It's brilliant. So feigning madness, he thought, would alleviate any threat by the Philistines that might want to kill David for what he had done. He had enough to deal with Saul. He wanted no threat from the Philistines, so he makes himself mad. 
And David laid up all these words in his heart and was so afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. And he changed his behavior before them and made believe he feigned himself mad in their hands and scrabbled on the door of the gate and let his spittle fall down upon his beard. He humbles himself. He wishes to show Achish that he is no threat to them by acting insane. And seeing his madness, Achish commands that, and he's afraid, he's saying, wait a minute, the man's crazy, maybe it's catching. Maybe David's madness is catching. So he commands that David be kept at arm's length and not be meddled with. Then said Achish unto his servants, Lo, ye see, the man is mad. Wherefore then? Have ye brought him to me? Why did you bring him here? I have no need of this madman that ye have brought this fellow to play the madman in my presence. Shall this fellow come into my house? I don't want anything to do with him. Let him alone. Let him stay here. Let him, let him walk out. Let him leave. Just leave him alone. And the king's response is quite interesting. It seems that, that as if he's afraid that David's insanity would be contagious or that he would make his men feel, feel awkward. So he commands that, let him alone. Keep him away from me. Don't let him into my house. Just let him alone. Let him, let him do what he wants. Maybe he'll leave or whatever. We'll see what happens. That's exactly what David was hoping to achieve. He wanted to hide out in the Philistine camp without any problems from the Philistines knowing that Saul would not follow him there. So having deceived the Philistines, David then escapes after having a moment to deal with what he's going to do next. Planning his escape, he goes to the cave of Adullam and it is there where we find him next when we return to our exposition on the first book of Samuel. And this we shall do, God helping us, unto the praise of the glory of His grace. Amen.